I know that according to every other church in town, at least, um, this is the second Sunday of Advent, they are wrong. When Christmas falls on Sunday, Christmas is the fourth Sunday of Advent, in my opinion. And since I'm the one preaching, <laughs> this is the first Sunday of Advent. Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me pray. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for um, every Lord's Day that you give us, where we can gather together, seek to encourage one another as we walk in, in a lost and dying world by faith with our eyes and our minds and hearts fixated on Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege of using this space, uh, the comfort that it affords us. Um, we thank you for all of the people that worked so hard to get us to this moment right here, not just today, but for the last decade. Holy Spirit, we ask as we contemplate the Christmas season, you would help us to not be overly preoccupied with uh, what we might be getting on Christmas morning or how we're going to pay for what everybody wants on Christmas morning, that we would be preoccupied with Jesus. Help us to that end as we study your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. amen. Uh, let me begin by saying that this is not going to be an exposition of Romans 8. Um, what I want to do today is talk about a theme, and the theme is all throughout the passage that we've just read. Um, you all know by now what I think um, about life right now in the world where we live and move and have our being, that it is because of the fall of man into sin, it is just our reality that we contend with a broken function in all created things. Nothing really works the way that we expect it or hope that it will. As a result, we have kind of a low-grade discomfort in our day-to-day -day lives. It's just always sort of there. 
And before those of you who are especially pessimistic start rejoicing over my final collapse into your perspective, <laughs> let me clarify. This world is broken and we are constantly suffering the effects of that reality. And I agree that as we get older, that becomes easier to admit, right? Oh, the world doesn't work the way I want it to. And, and more and more, I don't work the way that I want to, right? So it, when it's staring you in the face, every time you pass by a reflective surface, it gets easier to admit things aren't working the way we want them to. <laughs> I only have myself in mind. My best days are marked with at least a, a pinch of disappointment. And I think we feel this more and more as time moves us inexorably toward our end. The older I get, the more I want today to be a success because I don't have as many left to waste on failure. That's just pragmatic. If it weren't true that as we get older, we want more and more to make the most of the time. And it weren't true that as a result, we begin to be more and more hopeful, maybe not optimistic, but more and more hopeful. If that weren't true, then I would have struggled to find examples of uh, our hopefulness in Scripture rather than struggling to boil it down to just the three that I've chosen for this morning. The theme, of course, is hope. So this morning, here's my plan. As we begin the countdown to the greatest day of the year, which most assuredly is not the day that Jesus was born, but the day that we've chosen to observe his birth, I want to show you that the gospel and God inspires hope fans the flames of it in our hearts and encourages hopefulness in his children. I want to show you that he does that. Second, I want to show you how he does that. And third, I want to show you where in your life he does that. So that last one might be the most important one. Romans 8, 18 said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul points out the same reality, which I already have, and some of you would say, oh, he points this out ad nauseum. He's only got three sermons, and now we're back to that one. Um, th there is suffering in your life today, right? His children, God's children, are not excused or absolved from the reality of suffering in this life. None of us are. This is a given in the Bible's description of life. Look how emphatically he says it. Look at verse 22. The whole creation, just in case you weren't sure, just in case you thought it was just parts of creation like volcanoes and deep in the ocean and way in outer space. No, no, it's the whole thing. Look at verse 23. Not only creation, but we, us, ourselves, we who have the Holy Spirit, he says. 
we groan inwardly as well. Now, my hope would be as a a preacher in 2022 that this would relieve us of any faith prosperity notions that we might have about Christians being part of a protected class of human being who do not encounter heartache and sorrow in this life. Listen, you cannot name and claim anything that the Bible does not tell you you can name and claim. And health and wealth and popularity are nowhere said in Scripture to be belonging to the children of God in this life. It's not promised to us. The Bible is always honest with us about the reality of suffering, right? Now, I know the temptation uh, when I listen to messages about suffering is to get discouraged because just the word and contemplations of the reality of suffering tend to move my heart in the direction of being preoccupied with whatever way I'm already discouraged or down or in pain in that moment. I don't want you to be there right now. That's not where I want you to be. I just want you to recognize that the Bible doesn't lie to us about this reality. Okay, so don't get in your feelings too deep this morning yet. That'll come later during the altar call. (laughs) Trying something new this morning. The chains will come down. Just joking. Um, When we suffer, this is second. First was reality. Suffering is just a reality for us as people in a sinful world. Second, when we suffer, one of the things that happens is suffering augments something else that's within us. Longing. When we're suffering, the longing that is inside of the heart of every child of God increases because in reality, we have a sense of longing even when we're not suffering. And that sense of longing can best be described in our culture by the two words, can't wait. So when you're 15, You can't wait to get your driver's license. When you're 16 and you get it, you can't wait to be 21 so you can be a full-on adult. When you're 21, you can't wait to find a smoking hot spouse. When you find the spouse, you can't wait to have some kids. When you have the kids, you can't wait for them to be out of diapers. Once they're out of diapers, we can't wait to get the kids out of our house. Once the kids are out of the house, We can't wait for them to come back and visit. When they come back and visit, we can't wait for them to have some grandkids. When they have some grandkids, we can't wait to retire so we can go spend more time with the grandkids. And eventually, we get to the place where we realize we spent our whole life can't waiting instead of appreciating the moment that we're in. But suffering augments that longing that already exists within us. And this is most identifiable by a different word. The longing that suffering produces in us is a longing more akin to shh. I'm joking, he's fine. A longing more akin to hope. It's different than can't wait. I read a lengthy psychological study on the the concept of hope in, in human beings this week. 
Um, and one of the more interesting things that I discovered, that they discovered and you know, wrote in the study was that, that there is a huge difference between hope and optimism. Optimism exists usually when there's reasons for it. So uh, when you're driving down, I don't know, any one of these highways that has like the warning flashers that let you know the light's going to be red by the time you get there. If you're, uh, you know, 200 yards out and those things start flashing, don't be optimistic that you're going to make it through the light. But if you happen to notice that they start flashing right as you go past them, you can be optimistic. Especially if you speed up a little bit, you'll probably make it, right? Don't do that, children. (laughs) But optimism stops existing when there's not reason to be optimistic. But you know what doesn't stop existing? Hope. It's a human condition. It's just in us. We can't help but hope. When you're sick and you know what it is and you know that you will get over it, right? I got a cold. Well, the 5,000 times I've had colds before, it didn't kill me. I expect to get over this. So you go to bed every night hopeful that you'll wake up in the morning cured, right? I'm not the only one that does that. Um, When someone sins against you and you're sorrowful and heartbroken, you hope for vindication. Doesn't mean there's no reason to believe that there will be, but you still hope for it. Especially if somebody's lying on you and people are believing them. You hope for the truth to come out. When a loved one is wayward and nothing you say is getting through to them, you hope they come to their senses. And in these dark moments, we have a longing inside us for something better. And the longing is rooted in expectation. We are designed to expect things to be better. Sin has broken the function, but it hasn't broken the design. Expectations are met with disappointment because the expectation is high and bright. The reality is low and dark. We expect vitality, joy, success, life. But often we're met with sickness, heaviness, sorrow, and failure. Some, in an effort to try to take the edge off of disappointment, uh, seek to lower their expectations. This is the the trick. We try to expect failure, darkness, and death as though by anticipating the worst-case scenario, we can eradicate the longing that we have within us. We can take away hope. But no human being can completely remove hope from their heart. After all, it's the hope of avoiding sorrow which drives us to lower our expectations. So you're just hoping, but in like an inverted weird way when you start expecting the worst. We're designed to be hopeful. The creative mandate to subdue the earth, which did not cease with the fall of man, the creative mandate from God that we should subdue the earth suggests we were designed to have goals and apply our intellect and faculties in achieving them. Sin broke the success rate. But it didn't break that inward desire that we have to accomplish things. Sin marred the image, but not the function. So now we hope for the wrong things. We hope to sin and not get caught. 
We hope to hurt and destroy others. We hope to magnify ourselves. We are nonetheless hoping. Do you see? For the child of God, for the Christian, what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is that hope has been woven into the tapestry of grace. He says that creation was subjected. But look at verse 20. Creation wasn't subjected willingly, but because of him who subjected it, how? In hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So there is an expectation built into the fall and creation's curse that it's not going to stay this way forever. So trees, what do they do? They still grow. Fish still swim. Lions still hunt. Although I don't think they hunted before the fall. I think they ate plants. I don't know what mosquitoes ate. And I definitely don't know what cockroaches ate. Creation was subjected not just to futility, but to futility in hope. But into the curse was built an irrepressible expectation of good to come. Think about that for just a moment. And I realize this is all very cerebral and heady and, you know, maybe not all that helpful for you as you face the, the, the whatever you got to do tomorrow, work or school. But think about this. Part and parcel with the curse of sin, God put hope. Why did he do that? Because he wants you to hope. The Father is not sitting in heaven disappointed when you're happy. He, he, he doesn't hope that you cry a lot because it brings him joy. God wants you to have hope burning in your heart. And if you don't, I assure you, that is the work of the devil, not God. Let's look at a young lady named Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 1. First Samuel 1, verse 1, buckle up. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zaphim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, or Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf. So now you know who we're talking about. Oh, wait, he was, he was an Aphrodite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. When her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Penina used to provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? 
Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So what's going on here with Hannah? There's two things. First, there's the shame of being barren. Uh, Nowhere in scripture, nowhere in God's work, did he say barren women are under a special curse because they or their mother or their grandmother or their great-grandmother did something evil. It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. But that's what humanity had come up with. If you can't have kids, you did something wrong. Or one of your relatives did. So it was just understood in that day, if you were of childbearing age, married and didn't have any kids, everybody knew you had done something. They just didn't know what it was and treated you accordingly. So Penina, the other wife of Elkanah, treats Hannah in a shameful way. Now we know something about what it means to abide under shame, right? If you don't, let me enlighten you a little bit. Uh, We had our, you know, big meeting this week at work. The whole department, uh, the whole department, the whole team. I mean, this this is hundreds of people. Uh, And the first half an hour, at least, of this meeting was spent on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, where we get lectured about how, I mean, they don't say it, but it's everywhere implied. The more white you are, the more guilty you are of subjugating other races, and the more uh, heterosexual you are, the more guilty you are of subjugating, uh, you know, alternate sexualities, and the more Christian you are, the more, right, like, everything's okay except being a white Christian man. At the end of the day, that's reality. That's diversity, equity, inclusion, in my opinion. And we need to make sure that we're hiring people of certain uh, ethnicities and genders so that we can meet these metrics where our, our team is a reflection of the community where we exist. I mean, it, that's what God said. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is idiotic and ridiculous. What we should do is hire the absolute best people from the job, for the job, regardless of what their race or creed or gender is. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay, I'm not alone. Good. I was getting nervous there. A black friend of mine at work leaned over to another coworker and said, oh, I guess I just got the job because I'm black. That's shameful. Now, they're trying to shame me. They're trying to make me feel bad because I'm white and, you know, I should be giving the job apparently to somebody of of color. I'm, I'm not sure what they want me to do other than go out and find black people and recruit them to 
work where I work. But the, the whole idea is you are privileged and you should be ashamed of it. Well, I'm not. Because I subscribe to a whole different philosophy and a whole different creed. Says all men and women and children were created with the same dignity, worth, and value, and with the same propensity for sin. All of us are equally desperate for mercy and grace from God. It doesn't matter what color you are. And whatever I have, I have because He's merciful, not because I'm amazing or white. Amen? In Hannah's case, She's living under the shadow of shame equally over something she cannot control. That's first. Second, hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's in Proverbs 13. You think Hannah wanted to have a baby? Yeah, she had none. That's hope deferred. And the longer, ladies, am I right? The longer you go wanting to have a child, doing all of the things necessary to have a child and not having a child, the more hopeless you get, right? And then if you manage to become pregnant, it's just something else to worry about. Like, what if I don't take the right vitamins? What if I don't drink enough water? What if I take ibuprofen because I forget you're not supposed to do that? What if, what if, what if, what if? And the worst thing happens. Right? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire realized is like a tree of life. Why does Hannah pray? What does she ask God for? And what does that tell us about her hopes? She promises God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And a razor will never touch his head. Basically, he, he will be a Nazarite. He'll be dedicated to service in the temple of the Lord, is what she's saying. That's how bad she just wants a son. In Hannah's case, what God does is paints a picture of desire realized so that we can learn, so that we can learn that there are reasons to be hopeful even in the midst of shame. Listen to me. There are reasons for us to be hopeful even when we are in the midst of something that makes us feel shame. Verse 12, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly and vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if indeed you will look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, this is the chief priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunk. He assumed she was drunk. And he said to her, verse 14, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Shame on you! So you're already ashamed. You're already frustrated. Your heart's already sick because your desire's not being realized. You go to church to pray and pour your heart out to God about it. And James goes, what is the matter with you? Stop acting like that. Well, that's not very helpful, is it? But Hannah answered, verse 15, no, 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 no. 
I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli, important to note, he has no idea what she's asked God for. Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This passage doesn't exist to tell you that you will have children. The passage exists to tell you that God fans the flames of hope, even in a heart filled with shame. God does not want you so shamed that you are hopeless. Listen to me. God has supplied Jesus Christ as the antidote to your shame. This is why he came from incomprehensible wealth and glory to be born in a stable. This is why there was no room for them at the inn. This is why his earthly parents weren't even married yet. This is why he was despised. This is why Jesus was reviled, having done nothing, mocked, having never transgressed. This is why, contrary to the crucifix, Jesus hung naked on the cross to deal with your shame He endured shame. He became sin. Let's look at David, 2 Samuel 12. I'm assuming everyone knows this story, but in case you don't, David became the second king over Israel. And after, you know, warring against Saul for years and years, Once he's anointed and crowned king, he takes a well-deserved break from war and decides to relax at home one spring. And uh, while he's there, he goes out on his deck to take in the afternoon sun. And David's neighbor is in her house having a bath. And it just happened that David could see her. Um, He lusts, caves to his lust, commits adultery, and she gets pregnant. David, to hide that sin, has his neighbor's husband murdered, Uriah. Ten months later, Nathan the prophet comes to visit David and tells him an interesting story. The story is about a rich guy who steals the the little baby sheep, the little ewe lamb of uh, his poor neighbor and kills and eats the sheep. And it sends David into an absolute rage of indignation, at which point Nathan says, yeah, you're the rich guy. The thing that you are enraged about, you did. Look at verse 13, 2 Samuel 2. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. 
David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. Now, what's going on with David? Two things. First, there's the guilt of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. In Psalm 38, 4, he describes it like this. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too much for me. That would be bad enough. But there's a second thing going on. The pronouncement from Nathan the prophet that the child will die. What does verse 16 tell you that David was praying for? David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. What does a father feel when his actions may result in the death of his own kid? I thank God I have been preserved from knowing. But I, I can't imagine how hopeless that would feel. What ultimately happens in David's life, 18, the first part? The baby dies. So look at me. You may not be preserved from the temporal, the right now, consequences of your sin. You may get found out and you may suffer as a result of what you have done. That does not mean that there is no hope for you. Well, the devil would love it if you thought so. Enduring the just deserts of bad behavior does not mean you're hopeless and that God is done with you and that he doesn't love you anymore. What does Nathan say when David confesses? Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Your guilt, although you may yet endure consequences, your guilt can be taken away. This is why Jesus was beaten. This is why his beard was ripped out of his face. This is why he had a crown of thorns jammed down over his brow. This is why he was nailed to the cross. This is why he was considered to be abandoned by his father in his darkest moment on this earth so that your guilt could be taken away. You are not hopeless. As long as there's life, there's hope. To deal with your guilt, Jesus endured the fate of the guilty. He became sin. Let's look at Mary. Luke 1. Kevin read uh, 
this passage at the opening of our service. We're going to look at it again, just a couple of verses for the sake of time. Luke 1, 29 and 30. She was greatly troubled. This is Mary. She was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Well, what's going on with Mary? Okay, let's pretend for just a moment. I don't know what this would be like. You are going along, minding your business, and an angel appears next to you. And I'm assuming that it wouldn't look like me or Frank. I'm assuming there would be almost blinding light. I'm assuming Gabriel would like tower over us with a booming voice and just the sound of heavenly music playing behind him the whole time that he's talking to you. I still think it would scare the bananas out of you. So Mary's terrified, and when Gabriel greets her, what does he say? Oops, I'm on the wrong page. Twenty-eight. He came to her and said, "Greetings." Greetings. Not Mary. What does he say? Yeah. You can be at the same moment terrified and favored by God. Mary proves it. How often are both things true of us simultaneously? Well, if you're a Christian, Every time you're afraid, both things are true of you simultaneously. You're, you're afraid and you're favored by God because fear, like shame, and to a certain degree guilt, is something we can feel when there's really no reason to feel it. We can feel f- fear like detached from anything in our circumstances that should be driving it. You can feel shame just because your clothes aren't as nice as everybody's around you. That's not, that doesn't mean you should be ashamed, but you can feel shame, right? Fear is the same way. We can feel fear because we're just not sure what the future holds, though it may hold nothing for us to be fearful of. Anxiety grips us sometimes when there's nothing going on. Fear takes hold and it steals joy from the most beautiful moments in life. And many times we're not even sure what we're afraid of. Except I think we are, if we're honest. You like boil it right down, what's wrong? And I think what's wrong is you and I are delicate things. We're delicate little flowers, right? We're we're possibly going to be snuffed out by a strong wind. Cancer could be growing inside of you right now. Now, that's not, that's not a very nice thing to say to a crowd of people, right? But it's true. It, cancer could be growing inside of me right now. And you don't know. Was that, 
was that a, just a twinge or did, did you just throw a clot up your carotid? You could stroke out any second and be a vegetable that one of us has to take care of. We are delicate things. We are, the Bible describes us as a vapor. Do you know what, you know what the morning mist does? You know why it's called the morning? Because it's gone in the morning. It doesn't even hang out all day. That's us. We are so transient. There is nothing. There is nothing so good about your life right now that it couldn't be ruined in an instant by a phone call. Mary's confronted by an angel. She's told she's going to get pregnant before she's married. Any of you ever been there? I know a couple of you have. That's shameful. It looks guilty because it bespeaks of something else that was going on. Not going to make the car ride home awkward if you've got young kids. That's all I'm going to say. It looks bad. She's told she's going to be pregnant before she's married. And she's now imagining what all the possible outcomes of that are. She could be abandoned by Joseph. In fact, prior to him being visited by an angel, he begins to put her away quietly when he finds out she's pregnant. She could be shunned by her own blood relatives. As a result of a sin like this, depending on what corner of society you existed in, you could be left destitute by your entire community and left to starve and die. That's a possible outcome for Mary. And I think at the end of the day, if you boil it right down to, 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 to the bare bones, that's what bothers us. That's what we're afraid of. We could die. Anytime it could happen. Yet, she's told by Gabriel that she's favored by God. David is told his sin is forgiven. Hannah is told she will have a son. I think Mary's fear is tended by the promise of the favor of God. You agree? What about yours? Can you have, in the same moment, fear of the future and hope Because God has joined these things together inseparably. We abide in a world that is cursed by sin and the fall, yet he subjected creation to futility in hope. Can you have fear and hope? Hannah's shame is tended by the promise of her prayer being answered. Did you notice that? She gets done praying. She gets done talking to Eli. She goes home and eats. And her face is no longer downcast. Just him saying, may the Lord grant you what you've asked for. How can God hear 
let alone answer a sinner's prayer? How can God favor a sinner? Christ came, lived, died, and rose again. That's how David's guilt is tended by God's mercy and grace. Here's the real question. How can God show anything but wrath and judgment to a sinner? In the same breath, David says, finally, I've sinned. Months after the fact, going along, acting like everything's great, has a kid as a result of it, finally gets to the point because of Nathan where he goes, ah, I've sinned. And immediately Nathan says, the Lord's taken away your sin. You're not going to die. How can that happen? Because Christ came, he lived, he died, and he rose again victorious. To become sin, what did Jesus have to do? He had to become a man. Which means he had to be born. Which means he had to wrap himself in flesh and come into the world in one sense in the same way that you and I did. So that we might have, say it with me, hope. Because without Jesus, there is no hope in the midst of your shame. There is no hope in the midst of your guilt. And there is no hope in the midst of your fear. Without Christ, what we have is a low-grade misery constantly, all through life, saddled with fear, shame, and guilt until finally, mercifully, it ends. But then, uh uh-oh, now we're in hell. Separated from God for all eternity because of our sin. Life is miserable and the life which follows is equally miserable because it is an eternity of dying. I love Christmas so much because Jesus came. And I said at the beginning of the sermon, I wanted to show you three things. I wanted to show you that God fans the flame of hopes in our hearts. I wanted to show you how God stokes hope in our hearts. And I wanted to show you where God breathes hope into our hearts. And we saw three examples, right? We saw three people whose lives prove that God wants us to hope. And we saw three ways. He answers prayer. He tells us he loves us and he forgives sins. Those are the ways that God fans the flames of hope in your heart. He answers your prayers. He favors you and tells you he loves you and he forgives you of your sins. Come on, we should have hope. And then we saw where? Three places. And I love this because they're the places where we need hope the most when we are afraid, when we are ashamed, and when we are guilty, we need hope. And that's precisely where in all three of these examples, God fans the flames of hope. Hope has a name, brothers and sisters. His name is Jesus. I hope we have a Merry Christmas. I hope your Advent season is filled with hope. I hope it's filled with hope. May your fear, shame, and guilt be fully dealt with by the promise of the favor of God, the forgiveness of sins, and the answering of your prayers.